0: All right. What's the greatest comeback of all time? Is it Tiger Woods winning the 2019 Masters after, what, more than a decade without a major win and falling to over 800th in the world rankings? Clearly, no one else cares about golf. That's fine. (laughs) Is it Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl after trailing 28 to 3? Or 3 to 28? (laughs) No, it is not. It was a horrible day. (laughs) Is it Nelson Mandela? From prison to overseeing a regime change in South Africa? Is it the 2022 Kentucky Derby? Did any of you guys see that? That was unreal. What's the greatest comeback of all time? Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's go home. (laughs) And why do we love comebacks, right? Like, how come if you go onto YouTube and you, you look up, like, 1,000-meter high school track race, there's, like, 10 views because each of those kids has a grandma, apparently. But if you, if you look up, like, runner falls and then gets up and wins race, you've got 12 million hits, right? Because we all love a comeback story because we've all been there. We've all fallen flat on our face, in front of a bunch of people, embarrassed, ashamed, slightly humiliated, and maybe we didn't get back up and finish the race, or maybe we're still lying there, and so we love a comeback story. See, chapter 12 is David's comeback story. That's what chapter 12 is. See, because here's where we're at in the story. Chapter 10, we saw last week, David has the best victory of his military career. He defeats two kings at once, Ammon and Syria. Massive victory. But then we have chapter 11. And chapter 11 starts out at the time when the kings went out to war, David stayed home. And he goes up onto his roof for one night, and he sees his neighbor, Bathsheba and he finds out she's married and he decides that that doesn't matter to him and he takes him and her into his house and he lies with her and she becomes pregnant and he's like oh no and so you remember he brings Uriah home and tries to trick Uriah into going home and sleeping with his own wife but Uriah is too noble to do that and so David sends Uriah back to the front lines with that note to Joab the commander of the armies to say hey get get Uriah all the way up to the front, and then when the fighting is the fiercest, withdraw so that Uriah struck down and he dies. It is probably one of the darkest chapters in David's life. And that's where we jump into the story here in chapter 12. But spoiler alert, here's how chapter 12 ends. It ends with David having another great victory. He's back on the battlefield. He's back leading his men. He's back conquering the Amalekites. It's an incredible comeback. And so the question for me is this. What can we learn? What can we learn about David's comeback? What can we learn about how to come back from a failed business or a failed marriage or a massive moral failure how do we come back from that like David does? It's such an important chapter. So as we jump in, I just want to kind of set the scene, okay? So David's king, he'd be sitting on his throne as we enter chapter 12. He'd be in his throne room. He's surrounded by the nobles, the elders, the super important men of Israel, and he'd be holding court, And what would happen is people could bring in disputes that they had, they could bring in arguments that they had, and then David would judge these arguments. And so he's there with all of these men, they're watching him, and into the courtroom walks the prophet Nathan, and apparently he's got a case for David to judge. And here's what he says, chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich And the other poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his cup, and drink from eat of his morsels and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man. pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Mic drop. Can you imagine the scene as David is just taken aback by what Nathan says as there's whispering and murmuring going on at the men around? Oh my goodness. That's the embarrassment, the failure. What a scene this is. What a scene this is. And here's the very first thing I see when it comes to making a comeback is this, point number one, I need to be the kind of person who invites people into my life who will speak truth before I need it. Before I need it. See, this is an incredible moment, and I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I've been in a place of sin, of moral failure, of not walking with the Lord. And you know what I really needed? I needed someone who I loved and who knew me to walk me up and just smack me across the face. You ever need that? Have you ever had that? Are you thankful for that person? Now, (laughs) not then. (laughs) We have to invite those kind of people into our lives. See, David did some things before this time that I think are so interesting, things that we can really learn from. See, David always practiced humility. There's this great story you might remember from Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24 where David has this opportunity to kill Saul. Saul's been hunting David, right? And David sneaks down and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and it comes back and then it says this. It's so interesting. It said, afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, so key, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. See, David had this habit of being willing to admit when he was wrong and telling people around him, man, God really convicted me about this. And I think that that makes him so much more approachable to Nathan in this moment. Maybe Nathan would have approached him anyways. Nathan's a pretty brave dude. But I think it's so huge for us as we go through to admit when we make mistakes, little mistakes, small mistakes, because it makes us the type of person who's approachable for friends and family, for spouse, when maybe we're headed in a direction that's really going to end in disaster. David did that. David also made sure to be around people who were close to God. See, I love this about David. David had this great relationship with Samuel, right? And they would get together and they would talk. And then then Samuel dies. He was the previous prophet. And then Nathan comes up. And we see all the way back in chapter 7 that David called Nathan. Hey, Nathan, come, I want to talk to you. You're the prophet. I think that's huge. David made a point to be around people who were close to God And he put forth the effort to pursue it. Because here's what can happen sometimes. And I know, I've heard this many times, and I have done it. Okay, so we'll go with me having done it before. I'll teach a message, someone will come up afterwards, they'll give me a note, it'll go in my pocket. Hey, I'd like to get together, I'd like to have coffee sometime. It goes in my pocket. I go home, I have four kids, pants get spit up all over, pants go in laundry, laundry gets cleaned because wife is amazing. Note, gone. I also may have forgotten. Okay, so either way, and there's two types of people someone who will track me down and call me again, and that's normally the person I end up sitting down and having coffee with, and someone who will get mad at me because I never returned their phone call. Now, it's on me. I should have returned the phone call. Absolutely. I, that, the note should probably not go in my pocket, it should have been more important, go in my Bible, whatever. That's on me. The point is this, though David pursued godly people, he put it on himself. He didn't sit in his throne room and be like, "Well, if God wants there to be a prophet in my life, he'll send Nathan to me." He said, "No, Nathan. Hey, there's a prophet. There's a new prophet. Nathan, come here. Nathan, I want to be around you. Nathan, I want you to be in my inner circle." He invited Nathan in. And then he did this, which is so huge. When he got together with Nathan in chapter 7, the first thing David does is he asks Nathan for advice. David says right here, "I'm king. Dude, I you don't have to listen to nobody." But I called Nathan in, hey, you're a prophet. Give me some advice on this. And David is setting himself up as someone who's approachable and who's gonna listen. I've been a member of a family business for, oh, many years. Um, back full-time 17 years. And, you know, working in the family business and growing up, my dad and my uncle owned the business together. And I vividly remember the first few times that either my dad or my uncle, who owned the business, who were, who were in charge would ask my advice about a job. Hey, James, what do you think about this? It was so huge. It was so huge to me. We can't underestimate that because we're not a culture who asks other people for advice. We just Google it, right, and then follow whatever that idiot said. Find godly people and ask them for advice before you really, really need the advice because maybe they'll be the people who smack you upside the head when you need it. And then... Listen to their advice. Because if you remember in chapter 7, David calls Nathan in and he says, Nathan, here's what I'm thinking. Give me your advice. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan's like, sounds great. And then Nathan comes back the next day and he's like, okay, hold on a minute. Minor issue. God said, probably not a great plan. So you can't build a house for God. But instead, God's going to build a house for you. So Nathan gives him some great news, but also a little bit of a disappointing news. And David listens. David just doesn't bulldoze ahead and be like, well, what do you know, Nathan? A house for God. How could that be bad? I'm doing it anyways. Na- David, listens. You ever have people in your life who constantly ask for advice and then never take your advice? And then pretty soon, when they ask you for advice, you're like, you know what you should do? What I told you last time. When you've done that, then I'll answer your phone calls again. David's not that guy. David's not that guy. And so now, in this time of crazy, moral failure, where maybe nobody would want to come and talk to a king about this, he's got a person in his life who's willing to do so, possibly because of some things he set up ahead of time. Now, before we go on this, this, I want to take this from another direction, too, because there's also times in our lives as Christians, as believers, we're going to be called to do Nathan's role. We're going to be called to be the person who has to come and bring this message to someone who God wants the message to be, someone who is in our life, someone who's maybe asked us for advice that is in a spot where they need to maybe be, they need to have a mic drop moment. And there's some things we need to be very careful about. First is this, when I see Nathan, look what it says, and the Lord sent Nathan. If you're going to be the person to bring God's message of, hey, you are in a bad spot and you need repentance now, you better make certain that God is sending you. Little litmus test, if you're excited about it, it's not you, okay? If you're like, yeah, I'm gonna go tell him. He's gonna be weeping by the time I leave. It's not your calling, it's not you. Nathan's not excited about this. Secondly, Nathan or us, we need to be more concerned about others than we are about ourselves. Nathan's been around for a little while, he's not a young guy. He remembers 1 Samuel 22. In 1 Samuel 22, there's these priests in Nob, and they gave David some bread, and David was Saul's enemy. And Saul went down and killed 85 of them. He killed 85 priests, but he's king. He didn't get canceled. He didn't get thrown off the throne. He just kept being king. Everyone's like, oh, well, that was all righty then. He's the king. Nathan knows that but he does it anyways. And I would say this, if you have anything personally to gain by going and telling the person about this failure, be careful. Unless it's your spouse, and then you guys are one, so that's a whole different ball game. But if you feel like you need to go and talk to somebody about something you see them walking through, it's an amazingly important calling, and it's huge, but go there so prayed up, so ready for this? And then the next thing is this, Nathan's wise. Nathan knows David. David was a shepherd. I'm going to tell him a story about sheep. David gets gets backed into a corner. He's got a bit of a a temper. I'm going to have to catch him a little bit off of his guard. He's not being sneaky. He's being wise here. I know David. I know my friend. I spent some time with him. I know how to approach him in a way, in a manner, and in a time where he is most likely to hear me spouses, wives, husbands. There's times, and there's not times, right? And we know, and we know. And then finally, it's this. We have to skip all the way down. I'm just going to read it for you. But verse 15 says this, then Nathan went to his house, okay? And I think this was always Nathan's plan. We're going to see a lot of things happen between here and verse 15. And there's this amazing repentance. And David, I think it actually surprises Nathan what goes down. I think Nathan's original plan was, I'm going to go in. I'm going to give him his mic drop. I'm going to deliver the message from the Lord. And then I'm going to leave. Because too often when I've been in a confrontation with someone, even when I'm in the right, I feel like I have to stay in that confrontation until they acknowledge that I'm in the right. And that's if I'm arguing with them. The thing is this, the perspective we're supposed to have is, if I'm delivering God's message, all I have to do is deliver God's message, leave it with them, and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Deliver the message appropriately, in love, in kindness, if you're called, and then be prepared to walk away, even if they don't agree, and pray that God's Spirit convicts them. That's how we approach people. Okay? So, we've got this mic drop moment. And then Nathan goes on. He's got a few more things to say. He says this, Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the God of Israel, he's talking to David now. He's delivering God's message to David. God is saying to David, I anointed you king over Israel, and I, Yahweh, delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Here's the second thing that we have to do if we're going to make a comeback. We have to have an honest Conversation about our sin from God's perspective. How does God view this? Because here's the thing: I'm really good at justifying and minimizing my mistakes and my sins. Like if I'm David, I'm sitting here, I'm like, it's not really that bad. I mean, dude, war is dangerous. Like Uriah probably would have died anyways, you know? And and then where would Bathsheba be? I mean, honestly, I'm doing the whole family a favor. This is much better. We do that, don't we? We justify, we minimize. Well, it was an affair. No, it was adultery. Well, he had an accident in battle. No, no, it was murder. We have to have this honest conversation about our sin from God's perspective. And it's so interesting because right here we see God's perspective on David's sin. And what's the first thing that God says? He says, David, you're ungrateful. That should surprise you. The first thing that God says when he approaches David is this, David, you're ungrateful. What? Not you're an adulterer, not you're a murderer. We're getting to that. Start out, David, you're ungrateful. Look what I've done for you. Look how I've blessed you. How could you do that? It is so interesting to me as I read through Scripture how often thanksgiving is given as the antidote to sin. They're tied together so often. One of my favorite ones is in Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Here's what it says. It says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, that's a list already, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. David, you're ungrateful, and so it led you to coveting, which the Bible says is idolatry, and then once you were in a place of idolatry, everything became permissible. Everything became permissible. It's so interesting. When I first got married, um, you learn all sorts of things. I mean, you can date people for a while, and then you get married, and you live with them, and you're like, wow, this, this is new, There's all sorts of things I had no idea about, right? So, first year of marriage, here's what I find out about my wife. My wife likes to say thank you. Like, my wife would tell me, this is not an exaggeration, my wife would tell me thank you, like, 20 to 25 times a day. Hey, thank you for hanging the towel up. Hey, thank you for, you know, restocking the pepper in the pepper grinder. Hey, that's a great parking spot. Thank you for finding that. Like, literally like that. And I'm I'm, like, it's like, First married, I'm like, what is going on? This is insane. So I was thinking about it one day and I'm like, all right, two can play this game. So I turned it into a competition, right? I'm a twenty-four year old dude. What else? I don't know any other way to right. So so I'm like, I'm gonna say thank you more. Okay. So I was like on a mission right? And anything I could see, I would just be like, oh, honey, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing that. Oh, I noticed you did this. Thank you so much. You know what happened? Well, she loved it. It actually, well, we'll get there. Um, (laughs) What happened is this. I noticed so many more things about my wife. It wasn't that she wasn't doing them already. It's that I was consciously looking for them, this is still a part of our marriage to this day. I mean, it's, it would drive you crazy if you were in my house for too long and you didn't understand what was going on. Do we act with God like that? Do I approach my relationship with the Lord like that? Oh my goodness, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for my wife. Lord, thank you for my kids. Lord, thank you for that meal. Like, like a life just oozing thanksgiving. And then try to let sin get into that, right? If you're just pushing out thanksgiving, like it's really hard for sin to get through that bubble. It's really hard to cheat on your taxes when you're just being thankful about how God's provided for you and what he's given you and what you've been blessed with. It's really hard to to look at another woman if you're just constantly thanking God for your wife and thanking her for how much she's blessed you. And it's hard to be mad at your kids when you're looking for things to be constantly thankful for them for. It's an amazing way to live. And I think it's so unbelievably important. And God comes back here and he's like, David, you're a person of thanksgiving. Look through the Psalms and you, you've, you've lost it. You became ungrateful. You became ungrateful. The next thing he says is this, you despised the word of God. So oh, interesting. You're ungrateful and you despised the word of God. How do you feel about the Word of God? How do I feel about the Word of God? Do I love it? Do I love all of it? Do I love the deny yourself and die to your own desires verse? Do I love the put to death your sin nature verse? Do I love the sex is only for marriage verse? You can't be sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Do I love the serve your wife as Christ served? Or do I love the, the, the blessings and those verses? Do I love God's word? Because in order to sin against God, there has to be a point where I've decided to despise his word. That's what he says here. Yeah, this part is all great, but that part right there is not for me. I'd be happier if I did something different right there. I think I I, I despise that part of your word. We have to be so careful. We have to be so careful. And we have to be saturated in it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against. God, it's so unbelievably important. And then he does this as he's going through this list This conversation, as they're looking at David's sin from God's perspective, he says, look, we're not going to play little lawyer games, right? Because if I was a lawyer defending David, and these were the accusations, what would you say? Well, now wait a second. First off, David didn't actually kill Uriah. He sent a letter to Joab. How Joab chose to interpret that is Joab's interpretation, and God's like, we're not playing those games. Don't play those games with God. Do you remember when Bill Clinton was um, going through the impeachment trial? Do you remember that famous quote? Right? Because they had asked him if he was having a relationship with his secretary, with Monica, and he said, no, he was not in a relationship. And then later they say, Bill, didn't you perjure yourself when you said that? And his response depends on what the definition of is is. Sneaky little lawyers. Don't play lawyer games. With God. God says, David, you committed adultery and you committed murder. And that's exactly what we're going to call it. We can't call it anything else because that's what it is. And I have to be really honest with the Lord. And then finally, it says this your sin was evil. To do evil in the sight of God. Not bad, not a mistake, not eh, evil. Sin is evil. God says it's evil. And the reasons it's evil is because sin hurts people. It hurts me and it hurts those around me. That's what we see next in verse 10. It says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. The third thing, the third important step that David goes through here on his way to making the turn, starting the comeback, is this. We have to realize the full weight of the consequences of our actions. This hurts everyone. First thing is it's gonna hurt David's family. Two things that are said. It says the sword will never depart from your house and there's gonna be some crazy thing that goes down with your wives. And we know that. That's what's gonna happen next. The next few chapters are insane. Right In next chapter, you're going to see David's son, Amnon, and he's going to rape his sister, Tamar. And then you're going to see another son, Absalom, come in, and you're going to see a murder, and you're going to see a civil war. And before you know it, David's kicked out, and one of his sons has moved in and has taken over his harem. And it's a mess. It's a giant mess. And it's, it's, it's interesting because you read this, and, and you can easily go, well, God caused that to happen. God doesn't cause people to sin. What God's saying here is this. Look, David... There are consequences for your actions. You have shown yourself to be a dad, a man. Your sons are watching you, and you've done this. I want that, and I don't care what the obstacles are. And here's the thing dads, men, our kids are going to be whatever we are to the next degree. They're going to be whatever we are to the next degree. How do you speak to your wife? You ever ever been like on a playground and you see like a five-year-old just come up and just start screaming at their mom and you're like, that is unreal. What do you know every single time? That's how dad talks to mom. You don't just learn that. That's, That's how dad, it's so sad. Kid's probably even worse because that's what happens. The kids are the worst reflection of us. How do you talk about your neighbor, your boss, that other politician? How do you speak, dads? It's so interesting because oftentimes what we project in words, our kids end up manifesting in actions. You guys remember that old movie, American History X? I haven't seen it in years. This is not a plug for the movie. That's probably full of all sorts of junk that I do not remember. But the gist of it was this. Edward Norton is this racist neo-Nazi who's in prison for brutally killing this young black guy. And as you go through the movie, you see all these flashbacks. And you see his dad just saying these horrible, vulgar things, just racist remarks at the dinner table as he's a kid, as he gets older, as he gets older. And what happens is the father's words become manifest in the child's actions. And dads, it's so dangerous. We have to be so careful because our sin has consequences for our family. But our sin also has consequences for us personally, right? Right? I and mean, what's the first thing you see about David in this chapter that kind of jumps out and shocks at you? Like, he is really overly sensitive and judgmental at the beginning. Someone stole a lamb? That man must die. Really? Like, <laughs> it's a little intense, David. What's going on? I've never been a more judgmental person than when I'm stuck in my own cycle of sin. It makes me just horrible to be around. It's awful. It's, it's so tough to be in those places. David writes two psalms about this time in his life. It's Psalm 32 and it's Psalm 51, and he writes about what this sin is doing inside of him, this this hidden thing, because David is living a two-faced life right now. For nine months, it's been almost a year, the baby's about to be born. David's pretending to be a, a worship leader, a king, a righteous man on one hand, but inside he knows that is not who I am. I am guilty and I am hiding it. And he says that it it affects his health. He says it makes his bones ache like he's an old man. It says that it's stolen all of his joy and led him into a stage of depression. In in in, uh, Psalm 51, he talks about how it's ruined his ministry. Because he gets to the end and he says, now I can teach people your ways again. So there's been this whole time where he he doesn't feel right to teach. He doesn't feel right to share. He doesn't feel right to encourage because he's just so guilt-ridden. He says it keeps him from worshiping. He says, deliver me and my tongue will sing aloud again. David, the worship writer, says when I was stuck in sin, I couldn't even worship. The thing I love to do. I couldn't even worship. And it's really, really important that we stand back and we realize the full weight of the consequences of our actions when we sin. Something that I think Matt has shared and some of the other pastors have said, man, I wish, I wish we had a camera in those rooms over there for when someone comes in and they just confess their sin and they're broken and they're like, oh, this is what the sin has done in my life, and this is how it's wrecked me, and then you would be able to play it for them the next time they're about to go to the bar or click on that website, and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, play. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I don't like doing that. That doesn't work out well for me. We have to realize the full weight of the consequences of our sin because without honest understanding, we are bound to repeat, and that's what David is forced to face here, the full weight of the consequences. And then we get to verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. As we look back through David's life, I would say this is the most important moment in David's life. It's not Goliath, it's not as many victories in battle, it's not when he was crowned king over all of Israel, it's right here after phenomenal moral failure, David falls on his face before the Lord and simply admits that he's sinned and begs for forgiveness. See, when we're confronted by sin, we get three choices. We can make excuses, we can blame others, or we can repent and as I read through 1 and Second Samuel, the one thing that always jumps out to me is this, like, why is David so much different than Saul? Right? Because there's so many similarities. They're both anointed king. They both start out doing well. They both have times of worship and ministry. They both have great victories. Then they both have great failures. And it's not even arguable whose failure is bigger. Okay? Saul goes and wins a battle fails to kill the cattle and the king. David commits adultery and murder, okay? Like, I know that, you know, sin, we aren't supposed to weigh them out, but that one's heavier, right? It just is. Why is David a man after God's own heart and Saul is a man who God removed his spirit from? It's because in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul's confronted, he makes excuses. He comes up to Samuel And he's like, hey, we had a great victory. We did so awesome. And Samuel says, then why do I hear a bunch of cattle mooing and sheep bleeding? Oh, 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 uh, well, the people. You see, the people wanted to keep the animals. and And so I let the people keep the animals. Oh, and what about what about the king? Oh well, well the king, the king. I wanted to show. I wanted to show everybody. Everyone needs to see that there was a victory. See, he makes excuses and he blames, and men have been doing it from the very beginning of time, right? Adam, what have you done? The woman. You gave her to me. Everything was great. It wasn't the woman, Adam. Well, then it was definitely the snake. Definitely the snake. It wasn't my fault. David does. Absolutely none of that, does he? Because here's the thing. God forgives, but he can't forgive if we don't admit we're wrong. And God restores, but we have to tell him we're broken. And God rebuilds, but we have to be willing to change. David repents and is immediately forgiven. So cool. I absolutely love that. I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. How much do you value forgiveness? David writes a whole psalm about this. It's Psalm 32. I want to read it quickly. We're going to run out of time, but we're going to read this quickly because it's so beautiful. Here's what David says about being forgiven. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then God answers David and says, This I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or I will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Blessed is the man who repents. Blessed is the man who repents. It's the most important equation that we get out of the entire Bible. Repentance equals forgiveness. That's it. Repentance equals forgiveness. But the hangup I have is this. I always think that this story is how I'm supposed to repent when I've done something like some huge sin. But little sins, like regular, you know, every week type sins, those are no big deal. That's not the takeaway we're supposed to get from this. It's not that only sins like adultery and murder need to be dealt with this way. It's even sins like adultery and murder can be dealt with this way. That repentance always equals forgiveness. It's so beautiful. And so that's step four. It's repent and be forgiven. And I made it a single step because they're one. Repent and be forgiven. But there's still judgment And there's still some other things that we have to go through, so pick this back up. It says this, verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Absolutely heart wrenching section of scripture. Sin doesn't just have consequences, the natural repercussions of what we've done, it also requires judgment. It's the Sadaka and Mizpah tension we've been talking about lately. That God is a God of mercy and grace and love. And we see it right here. David and Bathsheba were supposed to be put to death. Leviticus chapter 20. That was the sin for the punishment for adultery. And he's been merciful, but he's also a God of righteousness. And sin has to be judged. And we have to like take a step back here for a minute and talk about some extremely important, like doctrinal truths that have to be understood cuz if we don't understand what's happening and I'm I don't I normally just talk but I got to read because this is so important I've been wrestling with this for a couple of weeks. If we don't understand what is happening here the work that God is doing from the beginning of this book all the way to the end we get on some very very shaky ground very quickly. Okay cuz you can read this chapter, you can read this story and then you can apply it directly to your life. Okay you can make it normative or prescriptive. Say listen, see this is how God works. And then what happens is this We transform this into into our everyday circumstances. Well, When the car breaks down, it must be because I yelled at my kids, see, God is punishing me just like this. I lost my job because I cheated on my taxes. See, see, God is punishing me. I, I had a miscarriage. It must have been because of some sin in my past. And we do this. We do it to ourselves, and we do it to others. And it's dangerous. See, we have to get this about God's relationship with his people with me, with you. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But how he interacts with his people has changed throughout the millennia. It changes throughout the Bible. The Bible has these big high points, okay? They're called covenants. It's the doctrine of covenants. A covenant in the Bible is where God would say to his people, here is how we are going to interact with each other. Here is what you are to do, and here is what I am to do, right? David here is under the covenant of law. God laid this out with Moses, and this is what it said if you follow my ways and my statutes, I'll bless you. I'll protect you. I'll be your God. But if you turn away from you, if you despise my words, if you pursue other gods, then judgment will come upon you and your family. Does that mean that the God of the Old Testament was vengeful and spiteful and enjoyed hurting people? No. No, we see way more accounts of his grace and forgiveness and his long-suffering than his judgment, but the judgment's still there. See, what happens to David's child here is exactly what God said would happen in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. It's the covenant of law. David turned his back on the Lord and pursued another man's wife. He committed murder. And so according to law, judgment came. Well, that's extremely depressing and scary, right? And it is because the problem with the law is I can't keep it. David couldn't keep it. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here today. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to to fulfill the law, right? Jesus comes to live the life that we're supposed to live in complete obedience to the law and then die the death we're supposed to die because of our disobedience, right? And then he offers us an exchange my perfection in exchange for your sin and judgment. It's called the covenant of grace. It's the greatest thing to ever happen, ever, 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 ever. The covenant of grace. It's what we live under today. See, the covenant of law said, if you turn your back on me, then judgment will come for you. But because of Jesus, the covenant of grace says to you and me, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, every sin has both consequences and judgments. Under the covenant of grace, Jesus says, I'll take the judgments for your sins if you want me to, if you want me to be Lord of your life. And here's the crazy thing. We have our entire lives to make that decision because God is gracious and long-suffering. So don't stop praying for that son or daughter or friend or cousin or aunt. It's not too late. They have their entire life to make that decision. But if we reject him, that judgment is still coming. And now it falls on us instead of on Jesus. He says, I'll take it but we can reject it. Either way, there's going to be judgment for sin. So to bring that all back around to how we live in this day, no, your car didn't die because you yelled at your kids, okay? It died because maybe because we live in a world where everything's deteriorating, right? And things just don't last. Maybe it died because you didn't put oil in it. Okay, that's consequences. That's your fault. Maybe it died because it's a Volkswagen and they do that, you know? (laughs) It just happens. But God's not punishing you. And if you put your faith in Jesus and made him Lord of your life, he never will. It's so unbelievably important that we have to get. Because here's the thing about David, and we see it in Psalm 23 if you read it. We see it in Psalm 51. We see it in the rest of this chapter. You never see David blaming God for his judgment. What you actually see him doing is echoing Revelation 16, 7, where at the very end of time, everyone standing in front of the throne room of God says, yes, Lord Almighty, true and just. Are your judgments. David accepts God's judgments. As right and true. Because he has acknowledged. That God has the right. To be his judge. Do you get that? This is so important. Without the acknowledgement. That God has the right to judge. There is no repentance. We have to acknowledge. That God has the right to be our judge. Well why does he have the right to be our judge? Two reasons. Creation and the cross. Creation proves that he has the right to judge because the, he is the ultimate power in the universe. And the cross proves that we should let him judge because he loved us even unto death. We have to acknowledge God's right to be judge. And when you do that, when you work your way through this, when you wrestle through this and you decide, yes, Lord, you are, have the right in my life to be judge, and even though I don't understand, even though it doesn't make sense, even though may, that might not be the way I do it, I trust that someday when I stand in front of the throne room and I see it all laid out, I'm gonna go, oh, righteous and true. Righteous and true are your judgments, O God. We have to reach that point. And I know so many people who struggle with repentance, oftentimes it's because they struggle with the, giving God the right to be the judge in their life. It's so important. I actually moved the order around. You notice that? So the next slide should have them in a different order. Well, it doesn't matter. Um, I wanted five to be four. So you really go through the steps. You realize the full weight of the consequences. Then you acknowledge God's right to be your judge. Then you can repent and be forgiven. And here's the great thing. Once you repent and be forgiven, then it's time, like David, to get back into the sanctuary and worship. Look at verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and you wept. They're totally confused. Like, you fasted and you wept. The child died and then you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows? whether the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. One final note, this is not a judgment on the child. This is a fast pass to heaven. You guys ever get the fast pass at Disneyland? Isn't that awesome? Does anyone know what the fast pass at Disneyland is? Okay, so if you don't know, like you can wait in the normal line or you can like hit this button and they give you a fast pass and it's like come back in an hour. And when you come back in an hour, you get to go on a separate line and you walk down the separate line and you just wave at all the suckers. like suckers! All standing in line waiting and you just go right to the front of the line. That's what David's child here gets to do. Like I don't have to go through the suffering on earth. I don't have to go through the pain. I don't, his life was not gonna be great. There's a term for what he was going to be. They call it a royal bastard. It's a hard life. Hated by his brothers and sisters. Always scared for his life. This is what what C.S. Lewis would call a severe mercy. So merciful to this child. Fast pass. I'll take you right to heaven. It's so cool. There's this verse in, in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to people. and He says, you know, don't despise the little children. He says, because in heaven, they all have access to the Father. I, I had a buddy I met years—I ran into him on my 10-year reunion, and I was like, Hey, man, we're talking about how many kids. And he goes, oh, I got five. He had four kids there. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And he's like, Yeah, one was a, a late-term miscarriage, but we know she's in heaven. And so he tells people he has five kids, and I'm like, That's beautiful and accurate and right because she got a fast pass. So it's not a judgment on the child, and so David's able to worship. And the thing that I think is so interesting is David here is absolutely certain of where his child is. And I thought that that was what was able to make him worship. I'm like, he knows where the child's going to be, so he's able to worship. But my wife disagrees. And since she's normally right about these things, actually, I prayed through it, I'm sure she's right. She says, I'll bet you that when David went in and worshiped, God gave him a vision of the child in heaven. That's why he's so certain. See, it's so often that worship leads to faith and not the other way around. So often I think my faith has to be strong in order to enter into worship. But what I find is if I enter into worship, my faith is strengthened. I think that's what happens with David here. And then the final one is this. So sixth is worship. Seven is this. Return to duty with the expectation of victory very quickly. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rebah the Ammonites, and took the royal city, and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, Gather the rest of the people together, and encamp against the city, and take it, lest I take the city, and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together, and went to Rabbah, and fought against it. And he took the crown of their king from the head, and the weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was of precious stones, and it was placed on David's head, but probably not for very long, because that is 75 pounds of gold. That is an uncomfortable hat. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and sent them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. He's back, baby. David's back. He's back on the battlefield. He's back winning victories. And you know what I think is so beautiful? I think he goes out expecting to win victories. Return to duty expecting to win victory. And that's huge to me because so often, if I fail morally in my marriage with my kids, I can get punchy. I can get where like, I don't know that I want to do that again. I think I might fail again. Or I think maybe because of my failure, God doesn't have more victories for me in the future. I think that's really what it is. I get this idea that because of this giant failure in my past that that God's like, he'll restore me and he'll love me again and that's all great, but he doesn't, he no longer has great things for me because I screwed all of that up. I don't think that's true at all. Return to duty with the expectation of victory because God still has great plans for you. It's a total comeback, amen? Lord, I thank you for this story, David. I thank you that you are a God who restores, repairs, rebuilds, and forgives. May we walk out of this room, every single one of us, joyful because of all that we've been forgiven. And may that joy and thanksgiving carry us through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.